Hey there, it's Matt from Generator. I would love for you to be able to listen to all of our new episodes as soon as they come out. So please make sure you follow us on your podcast app of choice or just head over to generatorpodcast.com. Also, if you like the show and want to support me, you can now leave me a tip with no membership necessary. It's just like tossing a buck or two into the hat of a street performer. So when you listen to an episode at generatorpodcast.com, you'll see a donate button right in the player. And please know that while it's never necessary, It's always greatly appreciated. So that's it. Thanks again for taking the time to listen. And now let's start the show. You know, if we're lucky, we get to meet people in our lives that are truly awesome, meaning we stand awestruck when we see their capabilities or their talent or their intelligence or their drive. Today's guest is one of those people to me. Nicole York is the quintessential artist. She's an author. She's a photographer, a digital artist, a crafter, a speaker, an educator. You get the idea. She's also a veteran and a mom to an incredible family. She's also the founder of the Artist Forge, which is where I've had the pleasure to get to know her. The same week we recorded this, Nicole launched her newest book, Vanished, and it rocketed to number four in her genre in new releases on Amazon. It was a pretty incredible week to talk to her. So in this conversation, we talk about a lot of stuff, the connection between snails and hobbies, how she finds balance in life doing all the things, how independent authors are finding a voice in the unlikeliest of places, which is on TikTok. And we even discuss the ethics of AI in art. There's no one I know that can break down the creative process like Nicole, and I can't wait for you to hear what she has to say. So enjoy this episode I'm calling The Goddess of Her Own Universe. This is Nicole York. Now on with the show. I'll say Nicole's amazing and she got yellow glass. You look like a guy I'm Lebowski. He's like, whatever, Walter. It's been so long since I've wanted to get you on here. And I wanted to thank you because generator wouldn't happen without you having given me that little spark a long time ago. So Nicole York, welcome to your brainchild generator. I mean, like it's your brainchild, but still, yes, I'm, I'm very glad. I'm excited. I was like, I wonder if he's ever going to have me on there. <laughs> I had to launch and be like, of course, his first guest is Nicole York. Just the artist forge just going round and round. Right. No, I'm, I'm really excited because there's a lot going on and you live in such a, a world beyond my world of creativity. I know cameras and I know a little bit of music and you're like, By the way, I'm just going to drop this bomb on Amazon this week. Then I'm also going to put out some mind-blowing art, run some educational things. I don't know how you find the time to master everything, but you do. Uh, I mean, I certainly don't feel like I master it. I think what happens is I've mentioned this before, but I think I have the how, how hard can it be, Gene? Like, I, I have that, like, <laughs> ah, give it a go, you know? Like, I, I think I walk into everything with probably an unreasonable amount of confidence where I'm like, yeah, I can do it all. And then I get there and I'm like, oh, this was a lot. Like maybe I should have slowed my roll a little bit and tried not to 
overdo everything, but I don't, I haven't seemed to get the drift yet. Like I know better than that. And I continue to do it every single time. Are you like me that when you get in way over your head, which is often, and you're like, I can either admit failure, which is not shameful and back out and save myself a lot, or I can prove everybody wrong and keep going. Like just keep going, keep going, keep going and force it to happen. Do you basically ever cut your losses or do you just say onwards and upwards every single time? You know what? I can't actually think of anything that I have ever quit with the intention of, of saying I'm giving up. Usually it is almost always something I enjoy. And I'm like, I'm gonna come back to this. Like, I'll come back to this at some point. I have so many craft supplies right over there that you cannot see on camera, but like, it's a lot. And anytime I get the urge to do a thing, I'm like, I'm gonna go get the stuff for that. And I do it. And I'm like, Ooh, it's nice. And then I go and do the next thing. And the same thing has been true with almost all of the careers that I've had at this point, which is interesting. So, you know, been a soldier, did medical junk and then got out and been a photographer and been a writer and, you know, had these different things. And almost all of them, with the exception of soldiery, are things that I can come back to when I want to. I have no intention of putting my camera down forever. I just right now know that in order to get myself off the ground in this field, I have to focus a lot. So I have to pare some things away, but they're always waiting there for me on the sidelines. Um, And I don't seem to be capable of leaving things behind. I feel like all of the things I pick up and enjoy are just little offshoots of, of me. And so I kind of I'm like this snail, right? Like I'm carrying it all around on my back. And if I want to, I can scoop back into my shell and grab something and pull it out and use it. And so it feels less like giving it up and more like putting it in my shell for a while. (laughs) The shell gets bigger and bigger and bigger. It's a very large shell. (laughs) It's It's an (laughs) 18-wheeler of shells. It's an 18 yeah. Everything you say, even since I've met you, resonates. I'm like, I swear to God, we were separated at birth because every neuroses, uh, every confidence that you have, I mirror. You know, you put some of these hobbies away for a little bit and you're going to come back to them. I've got an entire basement full of hobbies that I'm absolutely going to get back to. Making music, woodworking, sure. But the best thing for me to do is keep accumulating things for that hobby so I have them when I start. Hoarders, hoarders of craft potential. Like hoarders of potential. That's what yeah, it is. It is because you can't stomach the idea that if you want to do it someday, it won't be there. Or if you right. like, if you need, so here's a situation in which this all came in handy for me. So like, as you know, I just launched the book and I needed to send out some PR boxes to some bookish influencers so that Mm. they could, you know, get a feeling for it and show it to their followers and all that kind of stuff. And so what was I going to put in those boxes? The things that I wanted, I would have had to commission an artist for it would have cost a good amount of money. So what do I do? I reach back into my shell and I grab out the art stuff and I grab out the whatever stuff and I just made them. I I went and got something and I carved myself a stamp and I stamped some book plates and I made some bookmarks and I drew on them with gold pen and I just did the things myself because like I have all of these skills. Why do I not use them? It probably would have been way faster. And the end result, like the, the finished product would probably have been significantly more professional if I had sourced them from an artist who did that as their sole career. But I don't seem to be 
capable of that when I can do the thing. So they all came in handy. And luckily, the people who got the PR boxes really, I think they liked the fact that it had a personal touch, that it was done by me with my two hands. And that meant something. So like, it still comes in handy. And it is all sitting over there just waiting for the next time I'm going to need them. So for the people out there that don't know, you launched a book this week, Vanished, the first book in the, the Gwen St. James affair. Is that correct? Yes. I really want to dig in with that. I've never watched an author launch a book. And I know how much you write and how passionate you are about it. And to see this come to light now, tell me about this book launch compared to everything else you've done. It seems like this has really caught fire in a lot of different communities. Most people who write have probably been writing since they were young. It's rare that somebody comes into writing, you know, late in life and goes, oh, this was meant to always be my thing. Many of us have, you know had a tendency to do it. Um, and I always knew at some point I would write something that, that I always wanted to exist in worlds that don't exist or ones that I would never have access to. I always wanted bigger things than what I could reach for with my own two hands. And so when I decided to pivot from my photography career into being an author, it was mid pandemic And it was also really dumb because I can make a lot more money with a lot less effort as a photographer than I can as an author. Um, The potential for scalability is there as an author in a way that it's not with photography. But there's some stories that are just too big to tell with a camera. And when you get those ideas, they have to manifest themselves. And interestingly enough, and I've told this story a few times, but the idea for this book came because of a hat. I saw a piece of art. It is a felted hat and I will show it to you sometime. But if anybody wants to look it up, the artist is Lala Bug Designs. And it was this beautiful little, it looks a bit like a trilby hat, like a men's trilby. So it has a down facing forward brim and an upturned back brim, except the top is smooth and it form fits to the head, all except at the back of the crown where it curls up into a little curly cue. And it almost looks like a flower, like it grew out of the ground and you plucked it and put it on your head. And it was so charming. And I just wondered to myself, like, who would wear a hat like this? And then this character popped into my head and she's wearing the hat and she's standing outside and the wind is blowing and she looks back at me over her shoulder and she's smiling with this mischievous grin like she's about to go do, she's about to go do some stuff she probably shouldn't do. And I was so enchanted with her that I had to know everything. Who is she? What does she do? Where does she live? What is she like? And the more she came to life in my head, the more I knew I had to write a story about her. And so the Gwen St. James affair, that series is literally all about her. And I mentioned that there are some stories that are too big for a photograph, right? And as you write, you kind of begin pouring things into the story that come from your own life, your own traumas, the things that you know, and those stories require so much of you over the long term that by the time they're done, you've kind of poured yourself out into them. And my experience with the stories, in contrast to being a photographer, is that rarely have I ever walked away from making photographs feeling like I have invested as much into them as I do when I have written a book. At that point, I feel, you know, you, the ink is your blood, right? Like it is there on the page. 
So just the pure amount of effort over a long period of time, especially as an indie author, I think it would be one thing if I had written it and I gave it to my editor and then it went to my publisher and they did all of the things and I could kind of sit back and watch the machine move. But I'm the editor and I'm the formatter and I'm the publisher. So just the extended amount of effort alone is relatively exhausting comparatively. As far as that part of it goes, that's the biggest difference, I think. The similarities really lie in the fact that in each case you're telling a story and in each case you are getting an idea and then developing that idea and expounding on that idea and finding out which details matter and which don't and where you're going to put things and how you want people to feel. And like all of that part of the creative process is really, really similar. But the problems you solve as an author are a lot bigger and deeper and the amount of investment is a lot bigger and deeper. And and so that's kind of, I think, the biggest difference between like what it feels like for folks who are listening to be a traditional artist, right? Like to make a, a visual and then send the visual out versus what it is like to build a world and build characters and learn them and speak for them and all of that kind of stuff. It's just a another 10 levels deep of investment, I think, emotional and physical and time-wise. You're not just creating the backstory for a photograph, you're building a new world. Getting back to your flower hat, what's the most unexpected source of inspiration that you've ever come across? Was that it? Oh, yeah. 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 It it, it doesn't seem like a random encounter with a piece of someone's art mm-hmm. should all of a sudden spawn a whole universe, right? And like, if right. that was definitely the seed. And it It did. I think the most difficult one is definitely for the founding trilogy because it's easy to get people invested in fantasy because there's a sense of wonder there. It's not always, and sci-fi authors will know this, it's not always as easy to get people invested in like theoretical physics as the base for all of the things. Like, (laughs) you know, that that one's a a little bit more of a stretch. And I think it definitely has even a more niche audience than you would expect because it's science fantasy. So there's a lot of sci-fi elements and a lot of Um, a lot of fantasy elements. So that one, definitely the most complex, especially in terms of how do I describe what these people are doing when they leave one version of earth and show up in another version of earth? And is there a a physics base that you can use to kind of give an idea of why such a thing could potentially happen? That one's definitely the most complicated, but the weirdest and the most unexpected, 100% the hat. Really funny that you mentioned, you know, the founding trilogy. I loved it, right? Big physics nerd, big kind of sci-fi nerd. Absolutely love that trilogy because it it dealt with all the, the multiverse parts of me that it just made me feel comfy, right? Just wrapping myself up in the multiverse. Yeah. I can't wait to get into Vanished. I haven't read it yet. But I did pre-order it. It is uh, on my Kindle. It's just a matter of sitting down with it. And I can't wait to to hear more about it. But I've got to believe that it's hard to not only maintain your creative voice in an Amazon-soaked, you can get anything you want anywhere at any time, but it's also dependent on reviews. It's dependent on audience participation and reader participation. How do you handle all of that and stay sane? I don't. Okay. okay. <laughs> well, that answers a lot of the, the I handle questions. it badly. That's <laughs> <laughs> um, there, I think, and, and you will have experienced this as well, but it's the same as when somebody asks you, like, how do you find time for hobbies and your friends and your business and your art and all of that stuff? And it's like, well, you really don't. And And we've talked about this before, but I came to an understanding of balance that I did not have 
previously, because in my mind, and probably for a lot of folks, when we think of balance, we think of like a teeter-totter that's balancing and it's perfectly flat. That isn't how humans balance. In fact, that's not how animals balance at all. They have done really interesting, I I don't want to say it's a study, but it's an experiment where they had people balanced and on a, a pressure plate, and then they could monitor by looking at the computer where the weight actually sat on the foot while the person was standing there on one foot. And what they found is balance is actually a bunch of tiny micro changes all the time. So sometimes you're forward a little bit, sometimes you're backward a little bit, sometimes your balance slips over to the side. So what balance is, is not a a perfect symmetry between one side and the other. It's actually a bunch of constant tiny adjustments that keep you more or less in the same place. It's not balance entirely, but that's how I look at trying to do all of these things at once. Sometimes my weight's going to be on the front of my foot a little bit and the backside is going to suffer. Sometimes the weight is going to be on the side of my foot a little bit and the inside is going to not suffer necessarily, but there's less pressure there, right? And so while I'm focusing on this book launch, I'm not editing book two. That's a little bit of a problem because book two needs the finishing edits. And the rest of the books are being ignored because I can't get to them right now. And instead of playing at the park with my kid today, I am trying to talk to everybody in my Facebook group and get my ARC readers to make sure they're leaving, you know, their reviews in places. And so it's literally a constant act of slowly shifting where your balance is at. It's always in a little bit of a different place all the time. And also accepting that the dishes in my sink have not been done yet this morning. And that's not the end of the world. And there, I need to wash everybody's bedding. It hasn't been done yet. And that's also not the end of the world. So being able to let go of some of the things that I maybe would have guilted myself for with my previous understanding of balance, meaning I got to have an equal amount of time for my friends and an equal amount of time for my husband and an equal amount of time for my hobbies. And I don't. I'm going to go through seasons when those things are prioritized and seasons when other things are prioritized. So you have to look at it as a whole rather than like this day, if everything doesn't get equal time, I have somehow failed. Over the course of this year, how did I do? Did we go and have adventures together? Did I read to my babies? Did I spend, you know, quality time with my spouse? Did I get a book, you know? So I think looking at balance on that larger scale and then recognizing that you're not going to do everything well all of the time and that's okay is is the only way i've been able to make sense of of doing it without feeling horrible about everything all the time <laughs> well you know i know you work at home like i do and you've got a family i do not i can only imagine how difficult it is to maintain that balance i find it hard as a single guy one job for you, you've got a spouse and you've got children and you've got your, you've, you've got friends. I don't have any, you've got friends. Kind of. <laughs> kind of. Ones um, that no. I meet on the interwebs. Yeah. They're real, right? They're real. They're just, they're, it's spooky motion at a distance, right? Like it's, they're, they're like in the quantum field somewhere and they only exist when I find them for a while. I loved how you were talking about there are seasons where I'll be doing this, seasons where I'll be doing that. And it's it's a very nice approach to it all. It's a very balanced way to look at it. How do you stay productive with all of that? Do you have to separate yourself to a separate section of the home? Do you set up rules? How do you kind of go about staying productive in that environment where you're doing your best? That's a good question. Um, so there are some things that are non-negotiable, right? To, to grab Bassam's terms, there are some things that are non-negotiable, meaning like 
in the evenings, I'm spending time with my family and I read to my son before bed. And like those things are non-negotiables, meaning it's not as if something can happen and we don't do it every single night. But if it's at all possible, that is the habit that I have built for myself. And in the mornings I get up and I go downstairs and make myself a cup of tea and I sit by the fireplace. And like those things have become like the touchstones of my day. And right now, my kid wants me to walk home with him from school. And so at about 1.45 or so, everything shuts down and I put on my shoes and I go walk down and I get the kiddo and we walk home and talk. So having those touchstones throughout the day that you try to do no matter what that like keep you centered and grounded in your own life are really fantastic because it means now that you have those, you're free to put them aside and focus on the other stuff. So when those touchstones aren't happening, I don't have to feel bad about putting all of my energy into other things. So like, that's kind of a a first point there. And then the other thing is probably neurodiversity, to be quite honest, like it's probably ADHD, it's probably you have to be busy and your brain has to be engaged all the time. Otherwise, you start spiraling (laughs) out of control. So I think, I think that that's probably part of it because I'm constantly looking for something to be engaged with. The other thing is, well, I guess it's two parts, but one is the expectation of the people that I have made myself accountable to. I put up a pre-order for book two. It's already there. It has a date. If I don't meet that date, it's going to be trouble for me. And people want it. They expect it. They know that it's coming. So that is obviously an important part of making sure that I'm productive. And then the other thing is I also have a responsibility to the characters and worlds and to myself. I have these ideas in my head and they are living these lives to not get weird and creepy. They're living these lives in my head. Like as I know these people in, that live in my head better than I know some of my friends. I know their mm-hmm. life. I know their backstory in consequence and how they impact my life, they are nearly as real as real people. Meaning I learn from them. I have a weird relationship with them that may be relatively one-sided, but it's there. Um, Tolkien called this sub-creation, right? So in a very real way, in a way that's going to sound incredibly narcissistic, I'm the god of my own universe. And I have a responsibility to the creatures that I have created to finish telling their story so that they can then go on and be manifested in the heads of all of the people who are meant to read that story. And if I don't follow through with that, then they end up sitting in the back of my head, growing old and going, when is this shit going to get started? Right. (laughs) Um, So that is a kind of a legitimate part of it too. And interestingly enough, what I just said is the plot of the book. Like, my, my manifesto that I have been, I actually started writing this a decade plus ago, maybe 10 or 15 years ago, realized I was not a good enough writer yet to tell that story the way I wanted to tell it. It is sitting on a shelf and waiting, but that thing is, that is, that is a weird reality that exists for writers that this world and inside of our imagination is an entire universe that exists. And the characters live there. Frodo lives in my brain. Like he's, I know about as much about him as I know about some of my family members, right? Like I know his, I know his past, I know his history, I know who his mom and dad were like, and he's in there probably somewhere like puttering around and hanging out with Superman who also lives inside my head. Like once I have taken, or once a reader has taken ownership of the characters that they read about, and they have had this like deep interpersonal relationship with these characters, 
all of a sudden they are now manifested. They exist there. Maybe not the way that they did, certainly not the way that they did in the mind of their creator or in the mind of the other readers. Like that is a, an interpretation that's purely mine. So that version of them lives inside there, just like my characters do. And if they don't get out as a writer, I have failed them somehow. Like other people deserve to have Gwen St. James walking around in their heads in her silly hat, just being whimsical and doing goofy shit. And if I don't do that, <laughs> I am, I've, I've, I've failed her as her God and creator. <laughs> and th- therein lies the title of the episode, goddess of her own universe. <laughs> York. And if you, you don't think I'm going with that, you're wrong. Um, is Gwen your favorite character you've ever written? hundred percent. To the opposite end, right? Your brain is brimming with all this stuff and you finally get all these characters out and you get their worlds out and you slam into a creative block. How do you get past that? Have you ever experienced a, a big, deep creative block? Really? You've just always been able to push through. I've never hit a creative block in my life, but that's part of the problem. <laughs> it means I can I can never make enough fast enough to get it all out there. Like there are images in my mind, photographs I haven't made yet. And every time they pop up, I'm like, oh God, I know. It's really like talking to a kid who's like, hey mom, hey mom, mama. Like they want your attention. They got important stuff to tell you. They really want to tell you this thing and you're busy and you're like, I know, honey, I know I will get you. I pr-. There's a picture in my head. I have bought things for it. I've already made things for it. That is essentially like sleeping beauty, except the prince is a vampire. I can see the scene where she's laying across the bed and window light is streaming in and he's got a hold of her neck and he's probably going to bite it. And everything's really beautiful, but it's also kind of dark and gothic. Like that image is in there and it needs to come out. And until I do it, it's going to be jumping up and down and waving its arms and being like, pay attention to me. And, and that never stops. So in a way, it's kind of, you may think to yourself like, oh, cool, you've never had a creative... No, it's like a literal flood all the time. And all you can do is shore up the banks to try to keep things from flowing over. And you know that you don't have a big enough or a long enough life to make all of the things that are in your head screaming for attention. So it's like having four concerts and a movie and a theater production playing in your head all at once. And you don't always know who is the right person to give your attention to, or what's the most important one, or what's the one that's going to matter the most. Um, And that's, that is rough to live with in your head. But I have had times where I have had really, really long productive seasons. And I know that I just can't commit to starting the next thing yet. And that is usually where I fall. It's not a creative block in terms of I don't know what to make or how to make it or I'm stuck and I don't know my way forward. It is I know that the next time I commit myself, it's going to be a long term commitment and I'm just not ready to step into it yet. And those are the periods that I have. Um, And that is just me standing on the edge being like, do I jump yet? Do I jump yet? Not ready to jump yet. Do I jump yet? And then finally, eventually, I always do. Sometimes I just have to stand there for a while and get my courage up because I know that once I do, the symphony is going to start and the singers are going to start and the play is going to begin and the river is going to be in flood and I'm going to be dragged along until I get enough of it done that the water level goes back down. Doing research background on you, right? Um, when I was when I was vetting to see if you'd be good enough for this podcast. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I was, you know, putting in Nicole York, photographer, Nicole York, author, Nicole McKeon, like it kept growing and growing and growing. And you've got an enormous presence in 
the creative world. It's amazing to me where you leave your footprints, positive footprints. And I've never met someone that hasn't been something along the lines of, that's the smartest woman I've ever met. That's the most creative woman I've ever met. Oh my God, I don't know how she does it all. There's got to be some periods in there where self-doubt or imposter syndrome or something creeps in. I can tell by the expression that (laughs) there may be something to talk about here. I just need to know you're human. And, and not just a cyborg production machine. Do you feel that imposter syndrome creep in or do you mask it by jumping to something else? I have anxiety attacks. So that's, so do I get imposter syndrome? No, I do not. I, I, I don't really experience imposter syndrome in part because I believe in my identity as who I am that I'm a creative person, that there's not a wrong way or a better way to be a creative person. But also, I know very deeply that that's that's what I am as a person. I'm a maker of things. And if I work at something long enough, I will be good at it. I, I believe when I'm creating, I'm standing in my place of power. And if I'm speaking to people, I mean, I was a performer from the time I was little. And so when I would be, you know, in a play or something, when I would step on stage, you're in my house now. Like you're looking at me for a reason. It's because I have something to give to you and you're here for that. It's not me begging for your attention, right? So I guess I always am under the assumption that if somebody is here, it's because they want to know what I have to say. It's not because I'm trying to fight them to get them to listen. If they leave, that's fine. Like I just wasn't the thing for them. Um, So that doesn't hurt my feelings at all. But I do get overloaded and overstimulated and overworried. And so eventually there will become times when my body goes, we're not doing this anymore. Or when the, the, the stress that I'm experiencing as a kind of chronic, at a chronic level, if I'm not paying attention and I allow myself to get into those spaces, I will have panic attacks more often. I will have anxiety attacks more often. I will have a harder time dealing with my anxiety. Those things will become more difficult to manage. Absolutely. So that is the thing. And then I do, I just like everybody, I experience frustrations Um, because I have an unreasonable level of confidence that does not always jive. I do. That does not always jive with the success, right? I may go into something thinking this is the best book anybody's ever written. Everybody's going to love it. And it doesn't sell. And that cognitive dissonance is really difficult to deal with um, because you're like, wait a minute this was amazing. Why aren't people responding as if this is amazing? Um, And on some level, I do think anybody who's trying to make their living creatively has to have a certain level of arrogance. We have to think that we're worth listening to or worth looking at or worth buying. And if we're not willing to put ourselves out there, if, if we didn't believe that about ourselves, we would not continue to throw ourselves on the rack of public opinion over and over and over mm-hmm. again. So there, there must be something within me that says I'm worth your time. And I just follow that impulse. (laughs) Just continue going, yep, here we go. Here we go. Here we go. I'm going to go until something hits. But I do hit brick walls like over and over again. I do have expectations for myself that I don't meet. I do have times when I think something should be enormous and everybody should love it and people just don't really care. That doesn't mean I think that I'm imposter. It usually means I think I'm missing something somewhere. Either I missed an opportunity or I was at the wrong moment 
or I didn't, um, I didn't do something other people have done that did make them successful. Like I usually assume there's a gap in knowledge or understanding somewhere that I just don't have yet, or other people are dumb for not liking my stuff. (laughs) I mean, I'm kidding, but like, there's something, you know, like I think every artist thinks that they make amazing things. And for people who don't like it, well, they just might, they don't understand it. I can't lie and say that that's not in the back of my head somewhere. That's like, you don't like it, whatever. You're just dumb. This is that unreasonable level of confidence, right? I just, I picture you, I picture you sieging a castle and (laughs) the occupants of the castle are not coming out. So you're like, screw it. I'm getting in the trebuchet, launch me over the wall. I'm going forward. And there's Nicole coming, you know, into a new land. Screaming and flying over. (laughs) I'm here to save you with my words. I I love the unreasonable confidence. It's fantastic. It's, it's, you know what? It sounds fantastic from the outside. And just like the creative thing, it doesn't always feel fantastic from the inside because you do. That's why it's unreasonable, right? Because the the results are not always going to match the motivation or the belief. And that's, that's just a reality that you have to come in. So sometimes when I launch myself in the trebuchet, I hit the wall. I'm like, splat, (laughs) sink. I just need a bigger trebuchet, obviously. I just didn't have, no, I didn't have this perspective before. I rock climb. I can get up that wall. <laughs> so I splat and just hold on by my fingertips. I'm like, okay, <laughs> let me get a toe hold. Yep. All right. So moving from moving from that, I, I remember we had a conversation a couple of weeks back and I didn't understand a word of it about some of the things that Amazon is doing. I know that they are not being kind, especially to indie authors. Can you walk me through what a couple of those issues are? and what anybody out there can do about it? Yeah, for sure. So as with any industry, there's usually a big player right at the top, right? Somebody who kind of, um, because they've built the biggest platform, they have the biggest incentive for people to participate, but they also control all the functions within that platform, which means they can make it easier or harder to participate. And they are always going to err on the side of what is best for their company, for their shareholders, et cetera. So the way that this works is, Amazon, biggest bookseller in the world. And if authors want to be successful, they almost always have to have at least some presence on Amazon, even if it's purely for the reach. Because if somebody wants to buy a book, often they will pull up Amazon and they will go to the Kindle store and they will scroll through a bazillion books. And if Amazon likes you, meaning if you are good for Amazon. So if you have enough engagement, if you have a big enough name, if you have enough people buying, commenting, um, giving your book stars, whatever, then that increases your reachability, which means it increases your sales. And and that's a big thing for authors, especially in a really busy full market. You're constantly scratching for every bit of attention you can get to your book. Amazon is fantastic in that giving people, Kindle, Kindle Unlimited, all of that stuff. It has created careers for authors that they would not have had otherwise if we just had to kind of build a presence outside of Amazon. However, that means that they control so much of the market that it's very easy for them to squish smaller publishers under their feet, even if they're doing it accidentally. And then they also know which markets are really big and audiobooks have been growing year over year and taking up a bigger and bigger part of the market share. So there's kind of two sides to this. One is the Kindle and the Kindle Unlimited side, and the other is the audio side with Audible. 
Audible also one of the biggest audiobook sellers in the world. So that means when Amazon controls the terms and conditions of being able to use Audible, they can give indie authors 40% of the sale if they are exclusive to Audible and Amazon and 20% of every sale if they are not exclusive and they dare to also distribute through other platforms. And because they are the biggest distributor in the world, you get less than you should if you were in any other field and you were a creator licensing their work through a larger platform. In fact, when Brandon Sanderson did his Kickstarter and then the launching of the audiobooks for that Kickstarter, he went with a different company and he essentially said, I don't think Audible is treating their creators right. I don't think Amazon is treating their creators well. So I'm taking these huge books. It was the biggest Kickstarter ever that has ever been. I'm taking these somewhere else because we need to put some pressure on Amazon and Audible to give creators a better share of the royalties that they earn. And then where Kindle is concerned, if you are an author, Kindle Unlimited is one of the places that gives you access to tons of readers who read a lot because the only readers who join Kindle Unlimited, which is a subscription service, and it gives you access to every single book in the KU store. So if it's like Netflix for books, only everyone is in there instead of being also on Apple Books and also wherever. Um, And if you are an independent author, meaning you're not published by one of the big five publishers traditionally, they force you into exclusivity. So if you want your book to be available in that subscription platform, the ebook cannot be available anywhere else. Even if someone has pirated it and put it on a pirate site without your knowledge and Amazon's you know, web scrapers discover that it's on there, they can remove your not only your book from Kindle Unlimited, they can remove your entire Kindle account. So even if you were also selling paperbacks through Amazon, they can shut everything down and they do not even have to give you your last royalty payment. So they retain absolute control over that system. And they don't do this for big trad published authors. Those authors can be in Kindle Unlimited and in other places as well. This is only for independent authors. They're essentially taking the power that they have to force themselves to have the biggest market share and to punish you if you decide you also want to go elsewhere. Holy shit. I didn't know any of that. What can the author community do to combat that? Is there anything that can be done or is the mountain of Amazon lawyers just insurmountable? Yeah, it's not even necessarily the Amazon lawyers. Here's what happened uh, recently. Several authors had their books pirated and Amazon shut down their accounts. These are, and most of the authors who make the majority of their money money in Kindle Unlimited, they call themselves KU authors. So their entire focus is on Kindle Unlimited, the readers that are in there. They often write relatively quickly and try to get books into the hands of their readers relatively quickly. So they've essentially mastered that aspect of the platform. And that's where all of their attention goes. They may sell their paperback or something in other places, but their entire catalog is usually in KU and they're focused on those readers. When Amazon removes their platform, it takes away their entire ability to earn their income. And so what those authors then did is reached out to the bookish community, often on TikTok, because that community is incredibly strong. So they reach out to BookTok and they're like, this is what happened. My, uh, my book got pirated and Amazon punished me for it. And now I can't pay my bills. So in response to that, a bunch of readers said, well, I'm going to cancel my Kindle Unlimited membership. 
And so a bunch of readers did. Unfortunately, the side effect of that is that the way the Kindle Unlimited works is they have a big pool of all the money from every subscriber. So everybody who subscribes, all that money goes into a pot. And then it gets divided out amongst all of the authors via page reads. So every page that gets read is how much you get paid. And it's like 0.004 cents. It's like a play on Spotify. A hundred percent. And so if somebody finishes your entire book, depending on how big your book is, you may get the same amount as you would from an ebook sale. Or if your book is large, you may even get a little bit more. So what happens then is that 0.004% changes based on how many people are in the pool. So if fewer people are subscribing, your page read plays or your, your money per page read goes down. And that may not seem like a big deal until you multiply it by how many books somebody has to read in order to make a monthly income. So those authors then who were still in Kindle Unlimited, when all of these readers dropped out, they saw a drop of several thousand dollars per month in their income because now the pool was smaller. And so you're getting less pages read. Now I cannot with evidence correlate that result directly to this Kindle, this KU strike that happened. Um, But it did, I mean, it was correlated. So like, I can't say that that is the cause, but it, it was correlated. And so unfortunately, that's part of the power that Amazon has is that the folks who have built their careers there cannot easily switch out of it. And if something happens to damage that, their entire income gets damaged. And so we who are in this community are constantly walking on eggshells to make sure we're trying to protect authors, but also trying to fight for, you know, more fair treatment of independent authors who make up the, like a a bazillion, like we sell a lot as a collective. We are absolutely not in a position of power when, if we're looking at bargaining in part, because we don't have a guild. We don't have a union. So it's not as if we can come to the table and say, if you don't treat us better, we're going to walk away. If we walk away, we suffer and our families suffer. And that's not a thing most people are willing to go through on their own with no guarantee that we're going to look at the other side and see an actual benefit there. Amazon could just say, bye, we're going to start writing our own books with AI. And and there would be nothing we could do. It, it frustrates me. I wonder how many amazing incredible books are not being read because they're being stifled by that type of world, right? And trying to find the balance between your own creativity and making a living from that, right? When we make the switch from this is my hobby into this is my living, if there was someone that came up to you and said, how do I find that balance between do I make this a living? Where do I go? Do I have to accept the terms of the king or can I rebel a little bit? Are there any other roads for authors to go down to make a good living when you have this 800-pound gorilla of Amazon in the room? Yes. I mean, there there are certainly options. Um, and those are things I have been looking at and researching for a while. However, I think it's important to know, first, for anybody who does want to go into trying to make a living in a creative field, your chances of success are low. Like, you you just have to know that and recognize that. You it's a better, it's a better idea for people to work a day job and then have a creative side hustle long enough to test the waters and make sure that that's what they want to do. Because as most people discover, once you turn your passion into a job, it becomes work and it 
brings with it a lot of this, the, the things that are not included in the passion. So if I just want to write a book because I love it, that's one thing. But if I need to be doing outreach and I need to be doing marketing and I need to be analyzing my numbers and finding out why my ads aren't working and I need to be, you know, reiterating and iterating over and over again and all of these things not related to writing, if I'm not prepared to do that, I should not try to turn this into a job unless I can pay somebody to do that additional work for me. So that's like the first thing that people have to recognize. Um, and then the second thing is there are many, many options, but the viability of them is difficult to gauge. So there are folks who are doing subscription services. Some people are on Patreon. Some people are on other places. There's a new platform coming out called Ream, and I am in the beta for that right now, where um, it's for authors by authors. The platform has been built by authors specifically for authors of fiction to build community and, and have those things available. And so there are authors who are making six figures that way comfortably, and they're writing for that subscription audience. And you can still find their work on Amazon, but it goes to these people first and they have, you know, additional benefits and rights and goodies that the, the other audiences don't get. Um, there are folks who are making a great living that way. There are, um, there are people who are selling their audio instead of selling their audiobooks they are putting their audiobooks on youtube and allowing those to get monetized and then they're making an income off of ads instead of off of readers um that is an option for people as well yeah. yeah so there 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 are options out there but the question is how viable is it and is there a big enough audience that are going to help you make a living um in the case of subscriptions most of these platforms do not specialize in funneling people toward the right subscription. They're just a platform that exists and then you have to bring the readers in with you. So the problem becomes the same problem. How do I find and where do I find people who are going to be willing to pay for this? And that is always the difficulty. With, with any path you decide to take, the difficulty is finding those readers and then bringing them to where they're going to be a benefit to you and you're going to be a benefit to them. Book talk has been amazing for you, right? In connecting with other parts of the community. And do you see more authors moving in that direction, building a stronger community there, getting that one shared voice? Or is it just kind of fun to commiserate with other people that you wouldn't necessarily have access to otherwise? Yeah, book talk has been really incredible, in part because of TikTok's algorithm, which means that once it learns what you like, it gives you more of these things that you like. And so you have the two options, right? You have your for you page, and then you have your people that you follow. And so you get to check both of those things. And the for you page is great, because it brings you things you may not have thought to look for, which is that that reach that most, most authors are constantly fighting for. And if you're talking about the kinds of things or making the kind of books that people like, TikTok will let people find you that way. It will, it will kind of shove you in their faces a little bit and be like, you like this, you like this. And if you watch the whole thing, it's like, oh, you like it. I'll give you more. You don't watch the whole thing. It's like, well, they didn't like you. So, um, you know, like that's an important thing to keep in mind, sure. but the book community showed up on TikTok in a really strong way for some reason. I'm not entirely sure why, but readers are there just en masse. And they are so powerful in that community that they have changed the face of publishing. Like publishing now courts book talk, tests things out on book talk. In fact, TikTok made an entire um, linking option literally for only big five books in yeah. order to court the book community. Yeah. And, and the, the, 
the book talk community didn't love it because they're like, you're here trying to monetize us and you don't even let us link the books of indie authors that we love. Like you're, you know, and the interesting thing about book talk is they will not put up with bullshit. So if you show up and try to take advantage of the community without also being part of the community and like pouring into the community, they will kick you out real fast. It is a really, really interesting space. But if you do show up there and you're part of the community and you support and you comment and you're with everybody, the amount of support that you can get in return is really incredible. It is, it is the difference between book launches that nobody saw and the kind of launch party that you saw the other day where folks are there and they're excited and they're, they're interacting and also making those connections. Both of my narrators I met that way. Um, and then their friends I've met that way and their communities that I now have access to because we liked one another and we're like, that person's cool. I like the books they like. I want to see what other things they do. So, you know, the ability for that to happen has launched many, many careers. In fact, the number one best-selling author in the country right now, Colleen Hoover, was a book talk author. And book talk blew her up and then she went huge. And that has happened with multiple authors. Um, if you have the support of the book talk community, they will build your career. And, and that has happened multiple times. Now, of course, that's not going to happen to everybody. And for some people, it's going to be harder than others. But absolutely, if you can find places like that, where the community can gather together, it's going to change everything. And that is, that is my effort going forward is to build community. I would rather write for 1000 people who are going to show up for every single book and talk to me and talk to each other and love it and write their fanfics and make their art and just completely nerd out. And for those folks, like I want to give them all of me and I would rather do that and build a tight knit community than I would fight tooth and nail on Amazon to try to go up one ranking just so it's more likely that people will see my book. That doesn't mean I still won't put my books on Amazon. I will, I I will put them on there, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to give them, I'm not going to give Amazon all of me so that they can benefit and I can scrape by. I would rather give all of me to my readers and let them benefit from having my presence and my art and then me benefit from them than I would going the other way. Does that, is that going to make it like harder for me? Maybe it might. Um, but I just feel like that hard is better because I have people on my side than the hard of fighting for Amazon who just does not care. It's the difference between catering to your mailing list, those Mm. 300, those thousand people that really want to hear from you and trying to go viral on TikTok to people that will never be a customer, will never be a reader. They just saw something and they liked it, or, you know, they might follow you, whatnot, and never see you again. You know, the greatest successes in everybody that I talk to come from dealing directly with that community, being a participant in whatever it is you're trying to build and treating each member of that community like your favorite customer. So it seems to be like these communities are kind of popping up around all of these hobbies again with a much more engaged audience with people um, really connecting, really supporting each other because they want to take a little bit of that power back. It's interesting. We've moved out of, or, or maybe we are moving out of, and I think anybody who like listens to Seth Godin or reads his work will probably have heard this, but we're kind of moving into the creator economy, the connection economy, mm-hmm. where instead of consuming um, mass-produced media, people are tending more toward 
creators that they enjoy and creators that they want to learn from and also ones that they respect because now your personal ethics are starting to come into it much, much more, which is where that connection economy comes from. And if people disagree with your personal ethics, they don't want to support your work. And so being present and, and being honest and vulnerable about who you are and what you believe in and the things that you care about and how that informs your work is becoming more important than it has been in probably the last hundred years. That's, I think, where that particular community shines. And so a lot of, at least me in my case, but a lot of people who are looking forward to what is going to happen as AI grows and as it influences the market more and as more people use it. And as um, there's a a particular author who was talking about this next year, putting out 10,000 books. And, And that is including in various formats. So one book will be paperback, ebook, audiobook, whatever. And of course, you cannot do that as an individual without the help of AI. In fact, you probably need several people prompting AI, cleaning things up, doing all of that stuff. But if you do that, there's no reason you can't be putting out several books a day. So when that, when things like that happen, the market, of course, is going, the market already is glutted. There are hundreds of books going out every day. But if, if that happens and many, many authors are putting out work at that pace, we're going to have a problem. And then in addition to that, there is going to come a point where readers are, they don't need to go to authors anymore. They're going to open up the chat bot on their computer and ask it to write them a story. And it's going to do that. And it's going to know them because it knows their preferences. So it's only going to write things that they like. And so all of a sudden the need for the author or the artist now has been completely removed, which means people who want to be artists or authors are going to have to come up with a value proposition that is stronger than simply, I have a skill set that you don't have, which has always been the value of skill in the past. Like up until the last 20 years or so, the value of a photographer has been, I know how to work a camera and I know how to handle light and you don't. Therefore, you need me because I possess a skill set that you don't have. Same thing for painters, authors, anybody who has a career in those fields. In fact, I should say anybody who has a career that is subject to automation, like to being um, a, a word that I just lost. I don't think automation is a word. <laughs> to, to being automated. So if you can automate a field, then the skill set no longer matters. And if an end user can then go and use that automation, all of a sudden the need for you is gone, which is why we now have fewer cashiers in stores. If the process can be automated, then you, you can be removed. So the question is, we have to ask ourselves what cannot be automated? Because people will want to say, oh no, it's the human aspect that's the most important. It's our human voices. That is not true. I'm sorry to burst people's bubbles, but that is not true because these programs have been trained on human voices to replicate human voices. And then the second part of that is, as any as any author or artist will know, anytime you produce and share a piece of art, you're having a three-way conversation. Essentially, the person who consumes the art interprets the art and half of the art they experience is what is inside their head, what they brought to the equation and what they interpreted either from what they read or saw or heard. That is why one person can love a piece and think it's a masterpiece and another person can think it's a piece of crap. We bring the art with us by virtue of what we are as humans. And there's a relatively low barrier or low bar, I should say, to the quality that something has to be before people can enjoy it. This is why works that are are not that impressive in terms of uh, the skill of the creator 
there are lots of people that still love it and buy it and talk about it and recommend it on, on every type of art form from photography to books. There are books that weren't really very well written if you want to talk about technique, but people loved it and they loved the story and they are willing to share it. And AI has been trained on those stories and with people bringing their own interpretations to things, there's a relatively low barrier there, which means anybody who is not up here is going to be swallowed by people who are willing to consume down here. So what can we give readers then or viewers then that AI cannot do for them? What experience can we provide? How deep is the world? Do we have communities? Is there also uh, visual media and auditory things? Like how can and what can we build then that AI can't touch? And the main thing I think we're going to see is community, people that love the same things we love and that want to be around us and want to hear from us. Me as a person, I'm the only one of me that there is. And I hope to God that that is going to be a connective, you know, tissue in that entire fabric of what these communities will look like. Each other, the spirit of the community. Um, if anybody has ever been part of a community, you'll know it isn't like any other community. It becomes a body in and of itself that functions in a certain way and feels a certain way. It makes you feel something. And so those communities then I think will, will become like the streaming services, we will pick and choose which communities we want to be a part of and which ones to give our support to and which ones we want to consume from and who we want to support. And I see that happening as a, a kind of band-aid over the wound that AI and that this mindset that we have built in capitalism where everything has to have exponential growth and then everybody falls off that growth curve. Like everybody who's not riding the very top of the wave falls off at the bottom. They crash and burn and get crushed. Um, I think we're going to see these types of things become the salve or the bandage for that. And that is where a lot of us are going to fall. And at that point, if, if I have a thousand people who love my work, I don't need a million people. In fact, a million people, I will never be able to make them happy all the time. A thousand people, I might have a shot at that. Sure. And I might even be able to know them and remember when their birthdays are or know something about their kids. And they may care about me enough to know that if I ended up in the hospital, they're not going to be upset if they have to wait a couple of weeks for the next chapter. You know, they may send me a card. Like those kinds of things, um, I think, are going to be the change that we have to see in art communities if we want to keep surviving as creators. The global reach, the global growth, the access to everybody all at once is actually driving us, ironically, into smaller and smaller groups of just connected humans. And, you know, there were a couple of stories. I, I wrote down three while we were, while we were chatting that just kind of sprung to mind. Talk about all these AI issues. There was a, a terrifying story I saw about a mom receiving a phone call that had a replicated voice of her daughter. And he yep. said that I have your daughter and she was perfectly fine with her dad at the time, completely somewhere else. That's terrifying to me, right? The ethical use of voice replication. There are all these gurus online that when you were talking about, you know, false skills that AI creates for you and they're creating ad agencies and we can, you know, do all this copy for you. And it's just basically scamming money from people when they haven't built up the experience to know how to do this other than entering a prompt into AI. And then the third was the photograph winning Sony awards. That was all mm -hmm. AI generated. That was a huge story. Yeah. As I tried desperately to land the plane because I could talk to you for 
literal hours about all of this and go back and forth and back and forth. Is AI going to be this year's NFT? <laughs> right. Everybody was super on board with the NFTs a year or two ago. Is AI just at that weird inflection point where everybody's on everybody's tongues? And then six months from now, it'll just be so ingrained into everything that we do that it's kind of like, oh, yeah, I guess that's that's AI. I think we'll still be having these conversations in a year. Honestly, I don't think we are ready for the for the like the third term order of effects that's going to happen because of AI. When Google came along and started to get heavily adopted and became like an integral part of our culture. We completely lost the ability to do research through books, right? So if somebody had to look up, if somebody had to go through an encyclopedia and try to find out about mockingbirds, um, they wouldn't know where to look. Where do you even find an encyclopedia now, right? How do you go to a library and do research? Um, most people can use Google Scholar. They cannot go to a library and even know which book to choose because we've outsourced that skill set. And AI is going to be the mass outsourcing of skill set, just like calculators are the mass outsourcing of, of, you know, simple mathematics. AI is going to become the second brain that people rely on in order to tell them things. And the unfortunate part is that most of us have not been taught the kind of critical thinking that we need to know when to trust AI and when not to. And because it has access to so much information, it's humans have a confidence bias. If somebody is confident, we are biased toward believing what they have to say. AI cannot be anything but confident because that's what it is. And so it's going to repeat to us the things that it has learned, and we are going to believe what it says. And worse than that, and this is the thing that does make me nervous, worse than that is because humans are social animals and we anthropomorphize anything that has human characteristics. So our, our dogs are people and our cats are people, whales are people, everybody is a people because we put human characteristics into them even when they're not there. And with this AI, with the language-based models, we are going to personalize them. We can't help it. I find myself still, if I jump into chat GPT because I, I want to see something, I will ask it, please. And I will tell it, thank you. And I will say, can you do this for me instead of do this thing, right? Um, because it's, it's in us to be that way. And so I think the danger is that we are going to forget that it's not a people and that we are going to trust it when it tells us things. And we won't have, we will be losing skill sets on mass. It's not as if when, when the industrial revolution happened, if somebody needed to bake a cake, they could still do that. They didn't have to go buy a box of crusties. It just made your life easier. Right. And, and AI, as it becomes a production tool, we're going to go to it because the market demands that we make things faster and more and more often. And so we will find ourselves relying on it because we don't have a choice if we want to survive. And then soon we're, we're going to find ourselves relying on it because we don't have the skill sets that we would need to survive otherwise. And that's the part, I think, to be concerned with from my perspective. And I think if we are going to maintain any kind of psychological distance from that, we have to, we have to take some steps to mitigate those third order effects that we can't see things like, I don't know if this means we need a human made badge, you know, like there needs to be a sign on something that says that this was made from AI back in the day when the industrial revolution was happening and we were mass revolutionizing our agriculture. 
um, the government actually initially was forcing companies to put artificial on the packaging. So artificial bread, artificial milk, whatever, um, if things had been tampered with to the point, you know, that they needed to be considered artificial. Unfortunately, those companies had so much money, they then went and bullied the government and until they made them take that tag off. But I think that that's what we need. I think we need an artificial tag. I don't have the same problem with things like mid journey that a lot of artists have, but I do want to know what it is. And if, if it is being used as a piece of art in itself. So like if somebody is saying, I'm an artist, here's a piece of art. I need to know that it is yours or that it, that you prompted that. Um, I want to know if your hand was the hand that drew the brush stroke. If it's being used purely as a promotional thing, like this is what my character could look like. I don't care who made it at that point. I don't need to know if it is a piece of AI because it's, it's just a, a fleeting piece of something that helps me get an idea in my own head. But if you want to sell it to me, if you want me to buy that, I deserve to know what I'm buying, I think. Um, because if I want a piece made by a people, I deserve to know that that's what I'm getting. And so I think in that case, that's kind of what we need to have. If it's an integrated piece, that's a little bit different. If you prompted something and you got a background and then you painted on that background and you maybe composited something in at that point, it's integrated. There's a big human touch there. I don't have a problem with you keeping that to yourself, but if it is entirely coming out of a computer, I may still love it. I might still look at it and be like, that is gorgeous. I want that, but I do deserve the right to know what it is. And I think that needs to be the case on mass as we see AI take up bigger and bigger chunks, chunks of these artistic fields. If a book was written with AI, it should be labeled as such. Yeah, I agree. You know, there's, there's the, um, again, the ethical dilemma of what do you disclose, right? There's copy on my website that I've used chat GPT to help me with, to rephrase some things. Right. And I have no bones if anybody asked me about have I used it. In, absolutely. It helps me write newsletters every week. Yep. But there's got to be that human element. And I think it's becoming, there's been so much output so quickly. People are becoming very savvy to, oh, that sounds, that sounds generated. Uh, I can tell, right. right? It just doesn't have the same nuance, colloquialisms, whatever it might be. But you said something that made me laugh really, really hard because I find myself doing it all the time. I don't want to bother mid-journey. I know it's got a lot going on. <laughs> I know it's got a lot to do. And I go in there and I, I create a prompt and I create something. And I say, I'm going to give it a second before I upscale or before I create new versions because I'm sure it's doing a lot. I don't want to be a bother. I don't want to hit a limit and have it yell at me. I do the same thing with chat GPT that you do. Yeah. Can you do this for me? Yes. Oh, right. I'm so relieved. Thank you so much. <laughs> yeah. And I think, I think the difference too, Matt, is that when you're using chat GPT to help with, um, you know, content on your website or in your newsletter, um, you're not selling people the thing that chat GPT made. You're using that to help it write productivity tool, right. To help be clearer about what you're offering, like the service you're offering or to help, um, you know, let people know what you have going on in your newsletter or whatever. Like right. those things are not necessarily required because I'm not buying that. Like I'm not buying your blog post, totally. right? It's just helping me understand more about what you do because you're selling what you do. And that is the difference. If I was using chat GPT to write blog posts about the chat GPT book that chat GPT wrote that I prompted, and then you bought it thinking it was my book, well, then that's dishonest, right? right. Um, and this is not even touching the ethical concerns on how these 
you know, neural networks learn by scraping that, like that's a, that, that is a whole different conversation on, on what the ethics are of that. And personally, I don't think the problem is where it's getting its information. And I know a lot of people are not going to like that, but I can go learn from your copyrighted works and sell shit. That's just like you and nobody will stop me. That happens to me. I mean, almost any artist who has reached any amount of people, people have stolen your work that people have copyrighted my articles and got hundreds of thousands of views to the point where my company had to go after them and be like, Hey, plagiarizer, you know, like you can't do that. Um, that is going to happen anyway. Every time we make something, we're training other people on how to be like us. If they want to, the problem Mm -hmm. is the exponential side of it. The problem is the fact that it can out compete you so much that there's, you cannot make enough in a lifetime to compete with how much it can make. And then the ultimate problem is that people now can use it to replace you. And that's the big issue that we have to be thinking about. But that's why my focus is what we were talking about earlier. I'm going to build community and I'm going to give people as much of myself as I can. And I'm going to make a place where they can go be around people who are like them that love the kind of stuff that they like. And I'm going to use all of the creative skills that I've built that are in my shell, there's my shell, over the past however long. And I'm going to drag those things to the forefront to try to make these worlds as real and vivid and things that you can interact with as much as possible. Like, does that mean I might use AI to pretend to be one of my characters that people can talk to? Like, can you show up and there's a picture of Ronan and you can ask him questions and he responds? That would be pretty freaking cool, right? Like, yeah, maybe I can use AI for that because everybody knows what it is and it's fun. And it's just another aspect of things, but I have to give them something it can't. And I have to fight with Amazon and I have, you know, all of the things that are stacked against us. Um, but that's what we do as artists. We are pivoters. We are flexible. We figure things out. We think creatively. That's how we solve these problems. So I will not be stopped. <laughs> Here comes the trebuchet. I can't or my head would explode. <laughs> it's not build a better mousetrap. It's build a bigger trebuchet. Bigger trebuchet every time. Wrapping up, what's the what's the best piece of advice you've ever gotten about being creative? Ooh, that's a really good question. The first thing that pops to my head, and maybe I'll I'll think of something else later, but the first thing that pops to my head is Dr. Seuss. There's no one who is youer than you. That's what we have to offer the world entirely. Somebody's always going to be a better painter than me, a better writer than me, a better anything than me, but nobody can be better at being me than I can. My whole job is to be as much of myself as I can and as honest about that as I can and do the things that is in me to do. And, and that's it. I love that. I love that. I'm going to leave it there. You have had an incredible week. You've launched a book, set the stage for another whole series. There is nothing you can't do. I'm so grateful that we had a chance to do this. You have no idea the regard in which I hold you. And to be able to just kind of sit down and talk about this one-on-one really meant the world. So thank you so much, Nicole. Thank you for having me. Is there anything that you want to plug? Where can people find you? NicoleYork.com is the hub of everything. You can find everything else from there. My pen name is uh, McEwen. It's M-C-K-E-O-N. You're never going to be able to pronounce it because it doesn't look like what it sounds like. <laughs> um, but yeah, those those two things, you'll find me everywhere and that th- way. TikTok, is there a community or a hashtag that people should look for your stuff? At Nicole York Creates. At Nicole York Creates. Perfect. Thank you, my friend. You're amazing. Thank you. I'll talk to you in a bit. Bye. Bye. Hey there. 
Can I ask you a favor? If you're loving every minute of the show, and I hope you are, then subscribing is like becoming an honorary member of an exclusive club. Subscribing means you'll never miss a single episode, and trust me, you won't want to miss what I have in store. But here's the extra special request. I'd love it if you could take a moment to leave a five-star review. Your review is like a virtual high five. It lets me know I'm on the right track and helps others discover the show, too. Your feedback and support mean the world to me. I read each and every review, and they inspire me to keep bringing you the best content possible. So grab your phone and show some love with that five-star review. It's quick, it's easy, and it makes a huge difference. Thanks so much for being an amazing listener. Together, let's keep the conversations going. Subscribe, review, and let's make this podcast journey unforgettable.